Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Joe Lockhart and former Congressman Charlie Dent. Joe served as White House Press Secretary under Bill Clinton from 1998 to 2000, during which time he managed daily press briefings, provided senior counsel to the president, and managed communications through the president's impeachment proceedings. Congressman Dent served seven terms in the United States House of Representatives, representing Pennsylvania's 15th Congressional District. During his time in Congress, Congressman Dent distinguished himself as a strong, independent leader who is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. Joe, Charlie, welcome to That Said. Glad to be here. Great to be here. So back on November 20th for CNN.com, you guys wrote a series of back-to-back op-ed pieces. Joe took the position of arguing that the extraordinary nature of Trump's abuses in office warranted the departure of the norm of not prosecuting a former president, as was in the case of Nixon and Clinton. And Charlie, you argued essentially that Biden has to look forward and not back, and he must resist the temptation for spite or and reputation or prosecution, because in your words, it was time to heal. And both arguments, when I read them at the time, made a lot of sense. They were different, diametrically different, but I read each and I said, oh, I agree with both. And you can't agree with both. So I thought we would talk about that. But of course, since November 20th, the world has changed uh, quite a bit because we had the post-election months-long effort by President Trump to undermine the credibility of the election. And it culminated in the events of January 6th, where the Capitol was, was stormed. So before we get to the criminal prosecution part of what I like to talk about, I'd like to start with impeachment and, and get your take on it. Because in some sense, Charlie, and I'll start with you, your piece ends with it's time to heal. And, and that would apply for criminal prosecutions as well as, as impeachment. So I'd, I'd like to start by asking you, What's your what's your what's your take? How do you view where we are today versus where we were on November 20th when you wrote your piece? Yeah. yeah. When I wrote the piece on November 20th, uh, my my main point was I didn't want to see the Biden Justice Department or Joe Biden in particular. And I endorsed Joe Biden. I didn't want him to put his finger on the scale one way or the other, you know, to stay out of it, because I was always offended when Trump would run around and say, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. I thought that was terrible. We don't do this in this. We don't do that in this country where we go after we prosecute uh, the defeated candidate. We don't we don't do that. And, and in the case of Trump, I thought, well, at that moment, it'd be better if, you know, the U.S. Justice Department, at least under Biden, Biden stay out of it. And whatever accountability was uh, going to be uh, uh, dished out to Donald Trump would be done by uh, the attorney general or the district attorney of New York and perhaps other state prosecutors. Now, since the uh, the events um, after that time, when, when Trump carried on as he did about the election being rigged and stolen, uh, and he perpetuated this this lie, uh, and then of course leading up to the uh, 
to the riot or insurrection a few weeks ago, you know, I, I've started to revisit this thing, and, and particularly his call to the Georgia uh, uh, Secretary of State, uh, Brad Raffensperger, where he tried to strong arm that man into, uh, you know, uh, finding 11,800 and some odd votes. Well, I thought, my goodness, well, that's all that, that's got to be a violation of state law for sure and probably federal law. So I I thought that was an impeachable offense right there um, and certainly something he'd be pr- prosecuted for. So I guess I'm of the opinion now and since the insurrection uh, that the president does have to be held to account, certainly through impeachment. There should be a trial. Uh, we cannot ignore this. And uh, and, you know, so I'm, I guess I, I take part of what I said back on <laughs> November 20th that uh, that, you know, maybe maybe he does have to be held to account, you know, legally uh, because of what he did. And, you know, and he seemed to have some indication. I said to you off air that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that uh, some members of the leadership were told by Trump the night before the insurrection that there would be a need for 10,000 troops, uh, 10,000 National Guardsmen uh, at the Capitol. And then so they knew this beforehand or Trump knew this beforehand. And, and then he still you know, incited the crowd to attack the Capitol the next day. I mean, it should, I, I feel like he has to be held to account and impeachment, you know, may not be the only way to do it. So I think there has to be a complete thorough investigation and up to the point now, let the chips fall where they may. Now, if I'm Joe Biden, you know, I want to move forward. I, I'd rather not have to deal with this stuff, but at this point, I don't know how we can ignore it. And, uh, and the, the real challenge will be for Merrick Garland, you know, how is, how is he going to manage this? And doing it, do it well. He's not appearing to be overly political one way or the other. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a mess for that Merrick is inheriting. But Joe, you and I were together. You in your perch at the press secretary of Clinton, and me on uh, on TV while we watched sort of Robert Ray convene a grand jury after Clinton's presidency was over to determine whether or not Clinton should be indicted for the charges for which he was impeached. And you and I fought uh, mightily uh, using our voice to, to argue why that didn't make any sense. So if it didn't make sense, then why does it make sense now? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, Charlie and I's op-eds are not that far apart. Uh, And I think you can agree with the gist of most of them. I don't I, I don't take the idea that we should prosecute a candidate who lost lately uh, because that's just not what we do. It's one of the uh, foundational aspects of our peaceful transfer of power. Uh, we're not a banana republic. But by November 20th, I concluded that even without January 6th, that the president needed to be held to account because he if you even if you go back before the election. He was an engineering. He was engineering an attack on our democracy. You know, I call it. I, I call it the big lie that somehow the only way he could lose is if the election was rigged, and that big lie has a corrosive effect on uh, our democracy, uh, on trust in this country. And not only did he continue it after November twentieth, he doubled down and tripled down on it, leading to uh, January sixth. Um, so I, I think that this is very, very different than 1998 through uh, uh, 2000. And I guess what, you know, what I keep hearing in the back of my head is Adam Schiff's close um, in the first impeachment, where he talked about, he'll do it again. He'll do it again. 
He'll do it again. He'll do it again. And as Charlie mentioned, he called the Secretary of State of Georgia and uh, strong-armed him. We find out in the last couple of days that he had the Justice Department working on a covert um, overthrow the election um, operation. Uh, So not just for Donald Trump, but for future presidents, for Joe Biden, for whoever comes next, they have to know there's consequences and that they will be held accountable uh, for something that is indeed a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, so the reason I can take both of these positions is, as you well know, I did not think that what Bill Clinton did was a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, you know, honest people can have an honest disagreement uh, about that. This goes to the heart of our democracy, uh, and and it's just so very different. And so is there a consensus between you two that impeachment was the the only and proper route to follow, for example – there was a lot written um, at the time that um, Clinton was in, uh, sorry, that Trump was engaged in this activity, that he should be censured, that, that in a bipartisan way, Congress should censure him to put their mark of disapproval on him. Let it be known um, that this behavior is not acceptable, but not, bring the country through the torture of, of a trial. Do, do either or both of you guys have a feeling about whether at, you know, at, the, at an earlier time, if we had a censure vote, which was more unanimous than, than not, it would have taken us further down the line toward unity and got us the, you know, sort of the penalty that, that, that impeachment now is trying to impose. You know, Joe and I wrote an op-ed after the first impeachment, um, you know, this was after the Senate, uh, you know, uh, acquitted uh, President Trump on the Ukrainian matter. Uh, we felt that maybe that now was that that was the time then to uh, bring up a censure resolution to at least get the Senate on record. Uh, punish. And the House had voted to impeach. So that's a that's obviously a sanction. Uh, but the Senate needed to do that. Of course, they chose not to. Now, here we are uh, with uh, the second impeachment in which I thought was totally appropriate. I don't know that the House had any other option. But to move on impeachment, given, you know, the, the severity of the of the event that we all witnessed on on the 6th. So I, I agreed with their with that. And I and of course, there has to be a trial and I would vote to convict. Now, having said that, there are there are those there are those in the House, too, by the way, who said they should censure. And I thought, no, censure just isn't an appropriate response uh, for a, a frontal assault by the executive or at least one instigated and provoked by the executive. Uh, on Article One, you know the, the Congress, uh, and a violent attack at that, and, and an attempt to, uh, and an, an attempt to disrupt the, the constitutional order, and and to, uh, you know, uh, again interfere with a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, this was to me much more severe than a censure. So impeachment was the right course. A trial is the right thing to do uh, by the Senate, uh, and I, I think you know right now I think censure would be an inadequate uh, sanction. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's a question of timing. Um, uh, the time passed once I think the, what the, the, the disputed states um, certified their election results. Once that happened and we knew what the Electoral College was voting, that's when Congress should have stood up and said, if Trump the next day, which he did, disputed it and said it was fake and it was he had won the election. That's when I think censure made sense. Um, 
But that's why January 6th is, is so important, because he took it. He continued this assault on the democracy and then incited, you know, an insurrection. Um, so I agree that um, the idea of censure was out the window by by January 6th. And, you know, the I think Nancy Pelosi, uh, I agree with with Charlie. She had no choice. Um, she would make a mockery of the separation of powers and the impeachment process if she didn't do anything. Now, I also agree with a lot of Charlie's um, op-ed of the 20th, which is Joe Biden really wants nothing to do with this. He's He's got a lot he wants to get done. He doesn't want to do this. But I think he understands that there are 81 million people in the country who voted for him who do want to do this and who do want to hold Trump accountable. So he's just going to have to make the best of what is a difficult situation for him. Mm. And, and I take it that you both disagree with Susan Collins that he would learn his lesson. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a, I'm, I'm a good friend of Susan's and that was a, yeah, that was not the right thing to say at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say it went from wishful thinking to delusional thinking. Yeah. Um, and I think she regrets uh, uttering uh, uh, those yeah. words. Yeah, I, I think it started out as delusional and I, and <laughs> I think that's, that's the, the end of it. So we're going to have a trial. They're um, going to bring the article of impeachment over to the Senate and they will swear the jurors in, the senators in. Then there'll be this two-week pause where they'll exchange briefs so they'll understand what the theory of the case is or how they're going to present their case. And then the trial will commence in February. So how do you guys see it playing out in the Senate? And and, uh, let me start the question with the statement that then leader McConnell made, which was that voting to certify the election of Biden was the most consequential vote of his career. And he's been there for a long, long time. And his view that Trump provoked the crowd that stormed the Capitol. So we're going to roll into this trial. McConnell has let his feelings be known. It doesn't telegraph how he's going to vote necessarily, but how do you, how do you see it? How do you, how do you both see it? And, and Charlie, let me start with you because you served seven terms as a Republican congressman. You probably have a sense of the caucus uh, in both the House and the Senate better than, than most. So how, how do you see what McConnell is saying and how do you see it, it playing out? Well, I, th- I thought it was an important vote, too. Uh, and McConnell, of course, called it, I think, one of the most consequential of his whole career. You know, I, I, I came in in 04, and I, I remember voting on the certification of the George W. Bush election after he defeated uh, uh, <clears throat> John Kerry. And the state of Ohio was uh, being disputed by Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, and I believe she got Barbara Boxer to help her out on the challenge. And I remember that, that challenge that day. And I thought, you know, this is a perfunctory pro forma thing that we're doing here. Of course, Bush won the election. We're going to vote for it. Oh, and who are these kind of unusual members of Congress challenging this thing? This is just a kind of a futile, you know, Don, uh, Don Quixote uh, event by these folks, uh, suicide mission and not to be much, pay much attention. Okay. So that happened my, my second day on the job. I didn't think much of it. Then we had Obama's election twice and, uh, then Trump. And again, you know, I, I said, you know, these are, of course, you vote to certify the election. The people have spoken. 
end of story. There are some fringe members of both parties who are going to go out there and try to dispute it. But okay. Uh, but what was different this time, of course, is that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was disputing and contesting the election, not conceding. And but at the same time, I also knew that he had no chance of prevailing in the House of Representatives or the Senate, for that matter. Uh, so but this was, in some respects, much worse because it, it seemed that the president just was so persistent uh, and, and so committed uh, to trying to overturn this election. It was an unhealthy obsession, um, you know, both from a, you know, from a Democratic perspective. It was very unhealthy. Uh, and and so I guess I came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of members looked at this as one of these things where they were kind of uh, um, they were, they were uh, hoping no, but voting yes. That is, they did not want uh, this to be overturned, but they thought they were going to have a cheap and easy vote. OK, I can vote against certification. It isn't going to matter because the election will be certified thinking, hey, no, no, no harm, no foul. Well, guess what? That wasn't a good calculation uh, because it, it turned into something much bigger than they anticipated. This is not one of those votes you could just take a powder on. Uh, and um, and so I think McConnell was absolutely right when he said this is the most consequential vote of his career, because I think we're learning now it's this is whether or not you believe in in the, the peaceful transfer of power and accepting the outcome uh, of, of an election uh, certified by all 50 states and litigated up and down by the courts. Uh, you know, Trump's lawyers were beaten like rented mules, you know, in, in court. And so I think it was as consequential as McConnell said it would be. And, and, and Joe, what do you make of McConnell's second part of my quote, which is that Trump provoked the crowd? How, how, how do you read what he's saying to his caucus there? I, I actually think that it was as much a signal to uh, the, the Republican House caucus as anything. Uh, you know, you had um, – whether they thought it was a consequential vote or not, you had, you know, some 150 of them voting not to certify the election. You know, it's 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 um, it's just crazy. You know, there's no other uh, word for it. But I think he wanted to send within his own caucus and, you know, to the country at large that he didn't believe that what Trump did was right and that he was responsible and that there should be consequences. I think he was basically saying, bring bring the impeachment over, you know, you know, we'll be ready for it. Um, and, and I believe it was a, a, a principled statement, uh, but like a lot of principles in Washington, as time goes on, they, they seem to fade. You know, if you're reading the tea leaves now, there's only a handful of Republicans who've, you know, sort of signaled that they would vote to convict. And most of the caucus is talking about, you know, we shouldn't have this trial or, you know, there's the, the president is not responsible. Uh, but so, I mean, so, you know, we're going to have it. And as I think as much as anything, um, even if the president is uh, acquitted a second time, it puts every member uh, on the record. Uh, you know, these there are only 100 senators. There's only two per state. It's an important job. You don't get to work and take tough votes when you want to. You take tough votes when you have tough votes. Um, and this something that rises to this level uh, demands that they stand up and say guilty uh, or innocent. 
uh, now I've saw something about uh, uh, Minority Leader uh, McConnell wanting it to be a secret vote. Uh, listen, they need to be transparent. This this is it's it's not going to have a um, material effect on Donald Trump. What it is going to have is a material effect on Congress going forward, democracy going forward. And on an issue like this, you've got to stand up and make your views known and live by your decision. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's constitutionally permissive, permitted to, to have a secret vote, though I have heard people say, and Charlie, you might know, heard people say that if there were a secret vote, that Trump would have been convicted the first time around and he'd be convicted yeah. this time around. But people remain so fearful of the hold that he has on the party that they're viewing what's in their best interests first and foremost and are going to vote um, protect themselves at the expense of principle or what's right for the country. Yeah. It's a very short term political calculation uh, that they're making. They, they seem to think that uh, many of them out of fear uh, figure that uh, they're going to spare themselves a primary, but, uh, uh, but I think they, at some point, these members are going to have to start thinking about the long-term interests of the party um, that, you know, McConnell and Cheney seem to be in, and Liz Cheney seem to be in the camp of a clean break from Trump and, uh, you know, time to move forward. Uh, and, and I think many uh, are still kind of stuck in the, uh, in the, in this Trump rut where they, you know, haven't yet come to grips with the fact that Donald Trump lost in a rather resounding way in the popular vote uh, and in any electoral vote for that matter, he lost in a resounding way. He's been impeached twice. You know, he is now disgraced. Uh, and do you really want to attach yourself to this man going forward? You know, why, what, what is the political calculation in terms of, you know, winning a majority of the American people? How does that work? It, it doesn't seem, in my view, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, and, and I don't think Republicans have had this serious family conversation yet that, that must happen. And this reckoning, I think, is, has arrived. Uh, and, and, you know, and you're seeing it like right now. I mean, look, look, what was the reaction of some of them? Okay, you know, Donald Trump, you know, helped provoke and instigate the mob, attacked the Capitol. You know, Liz Cheney and nine others vote to impeach, you know, on the Republic, House Republican side. And what's the response from some of them? They go after Liz Cheney. Oh, she's the problem. You know, I, you know, heaven forbid, I didn't realize that she was the problem here. You know, she just simply called out bad behavior. And instead of, you know, looking at the source of the problem, you know, they're, they're going after those. Uh, again, they're, they're going after the firefighters, not the arsonist. Uh, and so this is what we're up against. And so if I'm a Republican in the Congress right now, I, I have to do some serious soul searching about what kind of party does, does it want to be going forward. I don't see the sustainability of this Trump model. And, you know, even though it might help you in your primary in 2022, um, you know, they're going to have to start thinking beyond that. And and that's the that's the real sad part. McConnell is, uh, you know, and the Senate is, I think, in a much different place than the House right now. The Senate Republicans are in a different place than the House Republicans. But I'm looking at the Senate map right now. If I'm McConnell, I see, geez, Rob Portman just announced today he's not running for reelection. Pat Toomey, Richard Burr. Now, these are all, you know, critical swing states. And these incumbents are just choosing not to run again uh, for, you know, it seems to me they'd rather not have to deal with this type of uh, uh, very uncivil strife <laughs> within, within their own party. Mm. Joe, how do you see it? Yeah, I think, I think Charlie's uh, exactly right. Um, you know, I think 
uh, Liz Cheney and some uh, some in the House, McConnell and even more in the Senate are trying to wrestle the party away from the likes of Matt Getz and uh, Jim Jordan uh, and Steve Scalise, you know, people who have bought in totally to um, Trumpism. And it's just a question of um, foresight and courage. Uh, the Both the courageous and the right thing to do right now would be what McConnell is urging, cut ties with them. Uh, your voters will get over it. You've, you actually have the possibility of reforming the Republican coalition to include a lot more working class voters than you've seen in the past. Uh, but Trump, you know, is such a lightning rod uh, to the opponents that as long as it's associated with him, it's hard to see winning nationally and, and in certain states around the country, Georgia being uh, the best example. Um, but. I, you know, I don't have any confidence that that's going to happen because, uh, and this is a, a bipartisan uh, comment, um, short-termism is rules the day in both parties right now. Uh, you know, what, what gets you what you need at that moment, uh, instant gratification, and this idea that sacrifices for suckers and losers. Um, and, uh, you know, neither party is going to um, you know, break out of this until, you know, they, they sort of break that chain. Uh, it's, you know, Republicans are in the barrel right now. I think Democrats a decade from now could be in the barrel, uh, you know, on, on politically. Uh, uh, but I just I have no confidence um, that the the structure of House Republicans is going to change in the near future. Yeah, we, we saw that freshman Republican congressman who voted for impeachment say that he thought that perhaps this cost will cost him re-election as a freshman who's well, Peter Meyer, yeah. Peter Meyer of Michigan. Right. Yeah. And, and a very fine man, by the way, my family and his family have been connected for about 30 years, unrelated to politics. We've known each other. Or I, I didn't know Peter, but I knew his grandfather and his father. Uh, and, uh, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, and that's a very fine young man, by the way. You know, he's the family's got a very successful grocery retail business in the Midwest. They're well known, well established in their community of Grand Rapids, and uh, and I think he's in a different place than a lot of these members. But I mean, he's, I think he's quite secure and comfortable within his own skin. Well, but he's also making a vote for principle, and we'll see. Correct. What Joe just said is true in 2022, whether or not. His voters, uh, Republican district, will forgive him the the the, the sin of voting for principle over uh, short term e- expediency. So I, I think that I think that we've sort of come to the conclusion that the likelihood of getting seventeen Republican senators to convict and maybe even one Democrat—you never know what Joe Manchin um, is going to decide. But but the likelihood of getting 17 at this point seems um, low. But we're going through the Senate process anyway. So, Joe, you've been a, a comms guy, and 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 Charlie, you've been in Congress. And so, one of the questions I want to ask is: if you, you you're not going to get a conviction, what is what is the responsibility then of of the House managers? Is there responsibility to say let's to Joe Biden, say, let's make this short and sweet. We know we're going to lose. Let's just make the, the, the statement that we did with the impeachment 
and, you know, call it a day? Or do you do a, a sort of for the American people to understand how egregious this behavior of the president was in this month's long campaign leading up to the January 6th? Do you put on a, a full throated presentation so that we all get to see all of the details of, of what happened, even though by doing so, you delay the onset of the Biden administration free of the, the, the Trump presidential um, impeachment process. How do you guys do it from a, I'm not asking you as lawyers, I'm asking you as sort of as a comms and as a, um, you know, sort of a member standpoint. How, what, if, if, if Jamie Raskin called you up and said, what should we do? We're not, we're not going to win this trial. Do, what do we do? Yeah, Michael, I think for a lawyer, you did a pretty good job of uh, uh, zeroing in on the political dilemma for the Democrats. Uh, There's no question that um, uh, Biden would like this wrapped up quickly, you know, three days, you know, read the charges, let them respond, go back and forth, let the senators have their say vote, uh, because uh, it will delay um, uh, consideration of some of his agenda items. You know, on the other hand, I think the American public has a right to uh, see all of this laid out uh, because I think still uh, most Americans have not focused on just how pervasive an attack this was. And, you know, he didn't come close, uh, you know, because the court stood firm. But you couldn't watch January 6th and not think, you know, the democracy is way more fragile than, than you thought. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, in the end, um, they'll, tr- they'll try to split the baby, uh, but they, I think they've got to do something more than just read the charges. Uh, I think they've got to, you know, bring in some people uh, who can talk about, for instance, uh, you know, if I could pick one witness here, uh, it would be the secretary of state of Georgia. Put him on, question him about that phone call and, you know, uh, and maybe, you know, somebody like Charlie mentioned who was on that call the night before uh, that goes to premeditation uh, and of the incitement. Uh, But I think you do have to hear uh, from people, particularly after the Democrats last time made such a big deal about, hey, we're voting without witnesses. We're not hearing from anybody. What kind of trial is this? Charlie, what's your take? Yeah, I tend to agree with Joe. I think. I think witnesses must be called. I agree that Raffensperger should be called from Georgia. Uh, It just speaks to the, uh, you know, essentially what the president's intent was, was to, you know, to to flip the election and and, and essentially steal votes. And as I said earlier, you know, I would call some witnesses too. I mean, what did people know? I mean, if I were Adam Schiff, I would want to find out, did any of the Republican leadership, did they know Did the president tell them in advance that they were going to need 10,000 troops uh, did he tell them that? And if so, what was their reaction? I mean, I, I am told that members of the House Republican Conference were definitely very concerned about things getting out of control the next day. They were very worried about it. You know, uh, so I do think that, you know, there was a, this, this notion of premeditation, that there was some sense by many that things were going to be quite bad uh, on, on January 6th. So what did people know and when did they know it, I guess, is the question. 
Uh, and, and then of course you can call other members too, who can, you know, speak from their experience that day. I mean, hell, you can get a whole lot of people to do that, I guess. Uh, but, uh, that's kind of my sense. Uh, you want to have some of those key witnesses. Uh, what did they know? Uh, when did they know it? And, and if they thought that there was going to be a, you know, a, a potential for violence the next day, why didn't anybody do anything about it? Or why didn't the, why didn't the powers it be? Uh, you, you know, allow for the, the guard to be deployed or why, you know, weren't the Capitol Police better prepared at the end of the day? I mean, so, I mean, these are all fair questions. And I think they, I think that demands an answer. And I guess for, for, for no other reason, you know, I, I point to what happened in the, I mean, the image that seared in my mind during that insurrection more than any other was that guy walking through the corridor uh, with a Confederate flag draped over his shoulder. That guy. And I and I I just can't get that out of my head because I kept saying that, you know, go to the east front entrance of the Capitol right by the oversized bust of Abraham Lincoln is a plaque by the front door. And it's dedicated to the honorary first defenders. I only know this because one of the units was from my hometown of Allentown, Pennsylvania, the Allen Rifles, who answered the call of Abraham Lincoln in 1861, you know, to come defend the Capitol at the moment of the Confederate rebellion. They were the first to arrive around, along with a unit from Reading and Pottsville and one from New York and one from Massachusetts. And they did. And, and so right there it is. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, the Confederates never got into the Capitol. And then we have this clown walking through the corridor with a Confederate flag over his shoulder. And I'm just thinking, at, you know, there has to be some kind of accountability. There must be somebody who somebody's got to answer for this. How did this happen? The witnesses must be called. Uh, and, and I mean, you could, you don't want to have too many, but, but for heaven's sake, I mean, after what we witnessed, um, you know, the, the, the foreign minister of Germany, uh, uh, Heiko Maas, uh, and I don't like to make World War II analogies or Nazi analogies, but he said, the current foreign minister said what he witnessed in the U.S. Capitol reminded him of the 1933 burning of the Reichstag when, when, uh, the Nazis burned the Reichstag. And of course, they blamed a, a Dutch communist for it. You know, at least you know, the Nazis at least tried to hide their tracks. Uh, you know, they, they, they tried to hide it. I mean, they, they uh, or conceal what they did. I mean, this group, you know, they were all out there. They were out in front telling us what they were doing. But I mean, that's how serious this is, that a foreign minister of Germany would say something like that. Uh, you know, it gave me some pause anyway. Yeah. Michael, I think, the, you know, if we're talking images, the other one that sticks in my mind um, is uh, the group that was outside that took down the American flag and raised the Trump flag, because that was the symbolic and the the image of what how Trump viewed the United States, not as uh, a uh, uh, a mature democracy where the people have the power. He he saw it as basically a monarchy, you know that that, that people had to serve him. Uh, and, you know, when you take down the American flag um, and I've, you know, I've been in politics for 40 years and every campaign I've ever done, I've had some Republican tell me I wasn't patriotic, that I wasn't uh, committed enough to the flag. And, you know, you know, that debate, um, you know, I went through 1988 with Dukakis and, you know, it was a silly debate then. It still is. But when you actually take it down and replace it with something, then that's real. Um, and I think, you know, those two images um I will not forget anytime soon. Yeah. So my thinking as, as the lawyer among us 
is that this trial has to be a full-throated presentation of what happened from the very beginning where the election was being contested improperly uh, in, in court and uh, in communications among the president's uh, folks leading up to and including the speeches at that um, January 6th Save America rally through the violence at the Capitol. And I think, and I'd like your reaction, I think among the most telling visuals, and I sort of see this trial, guys, as if it were one of those movies that we see at uh, Republican and Democratic national conventions, these wonderful six-minute movies that tell you who the candidate is, their their story of their life where you want to just, you know, sort of cry or gag, depending on your, your, your point of view, that I think that they need to get Steven Spielberg or somebody to produce a movie that has the taking down of the American flag, the bashing in the doors, the guy with the Confederate flag, the Auschwitz t-shirts. There are so many horrible images that could be laid into it. But I wanted your reaction to, to uh, the reaction. There's some reaction shots. I don't know how many more there are that are available to be had of Trump watching the events as they were unfolding, while we hear that simultaneously there are frantic calls being made to him to call out the reserves to stop it. Because you have to prove intent, that he intended this inciting um, event. And um, it seems to me that one of the ways you might present evidence of that is his response to it. Uh, what do you guys think? In ter- you don't have to talk about it in, in lawyer terms, but in terms of, again, if we're telling a story, how do you see the events as Trump is watching them on TV um, relevant to the, the this story that needs to be told? Well, I think the, the you're, you're right on uh, when it comes to intent. And, you know, it's... Uh, you're going to have to call some people very close to the president. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the president's reaction to watching TV is covered by executive privilege. Now, I have no doubt that they'll 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 assert that. Um, but uh, from what I've read, and again, I, I want to hear people under oath confirm it or deny it. The president was enjoying it. Uh, he thought it was great. Um I, again, I don't know that to be true, but I want to know. And I think, you know, as an American, I have a right to know that, uh, given what happened that day and what happened leading up to that day. So, um, you know, you have um, the events of uh, January 6th, but also, you know, all of the there there is a massive amount of video of the president undermining the election, both before and after uh, talking about you know, doing everything he could to make sure that 50 percent of the country thought that the election was stolen and that uh, Joe Biden was illegitimate. Uh, So I think, you know, putting that together in a coherent way um, will be won't be that hard to do. Uh, And I think it will put pressure on Republican senators, you know, if they go all out here uh, to, you know, after watching this for two weeks saying, oh, no, 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 he's not he's not guilty. Yeah. 
That, that's yep. sort of my, that's my, my take. Charlie? I think we need a, I think, you know, if, if uh, the House Democratic uh, impeachment managers are smart, you know, they'll have a very sophisticated timeline with video to show, you know, exactly what the state of mind was, the premeditation. And then, you know, again, uh, you know, we, I wasn't in the White House, nor was Joe, but we, you know, we, we keep reading that the president seemed to be enjoying what he was witnessing. And again, I spoke to, again, a Republican member earlier today who, who said, you know, the president didn't, you know, didn't call off the dog, so to speak, until two hours after everything had seemed to have abated. Uh, and um, and uh, and then told the, the crowd that he loved them. Um, and I think this is what's so uh, uh, so stunning, you know, and and again, I mean, if you're the president of the United States I mean, he was watching what we were watching on television and I was watching. I was saying to my wife, where are the horses? Where are the dogs? Where are the fire hoses? And why aren't these people being slammed up against the wall or on the ground and being handcuffed? I mean, they're entering the U.S. Capitol without authorization. I mean, it's a restricted area. If anybody else says, Hey, I'm just going to go bust through here. You know, they are going to get, they're going to get taken down, you know, understandably so. And, and I guess that's why, how could the the state of mind of the president be that this was somehow all right? I mean, it was an abomination and um, it was a hideous assault. So I guess the issue is, yeah, let's, let's, let's call in some witnesses. Let's, let's go through the fact pattern and the, and let's show the video, and 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 I think they'll have a pretty easy case to prove uh, that the president knew something bad was going to happen, didn't lift the finger. Then when he witnessed the uh, the events happening, he seemed to enjoy it. And then after it was all over, you know, he said he loved the crowd, the people who did it. I mean, yeah. I mean, you just you know, my head's ready to explode. You know, I, I need to lie down after all this talking. Yeah. You know, it's tough. <laughs> oh. Yeah, uh, 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 Michael, uh, my wife said to me. You know, where are the horses? Where are the, you know, why is no one doing anything out there? And I said to her, um, and I think it proved right, that whatever was going on outside, what what's going on inside must be a lot worse. Because there, you know, you knew the Capitol Police were there. And, you know, police and military will deal with the biggest problem they have. Uh, and that's why outside they didn't care about them. You know, they were, you know, people were dying inside. Uh, so, um yeah. Uh, you know, that's it's a whole other investigation of how um, they were they were not prepared for this. I think on um, I think where the trial gets really, really interesting uh, beyond the video clips is when you call people and put them under oath who are close to the president. If you believe everything you read in the newspaper, Jared Kushner was trying to get the president was urging him to stop doing what he was doing before it to go out and put out a different statement, call off the dogs. Um, and if you believe everything you read in the newspaper, Mark Meadows was cheerleading this. Well, I want to see them both under oath, you know, under penalty of perjury and hear from the people who are in the room. Uh, and maybe they'll lie, you know, maybe they won't. But if they tell the truth, uh, I think um, Charlie's right. There's a strong case here. Yeah, and I think that... Same would hold true for what we've been reading in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal of late, which was the pressure campaign that Trump was engaged in with respect to acting Attorney General Rosen to file a spurious brief in the Supreme Court and uh, to challenge the the election. And if he refused to be fired and replaced with somebody who was willing 
to do that. And apparently White House counsel lawyers were there. The whole senior uh, executive service of the Justice Department was there. They were all going to quit in Moss if this carried forth. I think we need to hear from those people under oath because it does lay the foundation for the aspect of the article that says that this was months long in the making. This was not one day, one hyperbolic political speech, and then uh, a mob that was acting on its own without um, sort of premeditated planning um, that the president um, and his and his folks put in into place. Yeah, Michael, the one thing we haven't mentioned, which I think is even more important than the conviction, is whether Trump is barred from running again. Um, you know, there's lots of different theories on that. But I think it's an important point for at least to be debated, uh, because I have no doubt that if he has um, the ability to run again, he will at least campaign for it. Um, and, you know, we'll be right back where we were. Uh, I don't normally uh, feel sorry for Republicans, but uh, I do in this case if Trump continues to play this role, because I think it it. It, it takes the party in the uh, sh- you know, straight downward direction of being a minority party, uh, of being a 43% party and not being able to expand. Now, if they show some wisdom and cut ties with Trump, um, then I think we're, you know, we're back to our two-party system that's, and it's going to go back and forth. Uh, but you know, if, if Trump is allowed to continue to be a major player in U.S. politics, um, that's bad news for the country. And I think it's bad news for Republicans. Right. In fact, yeah. I think that, and Charlie, I'll give you a, the mic in one second. I think that in fact, one of the reasons that the Democrats in answering the question, why did you go forward with impeachment when he was going to be out of office before the trial began was this second vote in the Senate that the constitution authorizes that if you're convicted, you can then be, on a 51-person majority vote, be disqualified from future office. And I think that underlied a lot of what the thinking was among the House um, members that, that, you know, that supported this um, impeachment mechanism. Yeah, Charlie, I think, I, like, so. yeah I, I, the only thing I would add to what Joe just said and what you have said, uh, that, that the, uh, you know, there are going to be those who say if you vote to uh, prohibit the president from ever seeking high office again, you'll turn him into a martyr and you'll make him something larger than he actually is. And there's some, probably some truth to that. Uh, but at the same time, again, the question begs, is there going to be any accountability? And there must be. And what the president's conduct was in fact, disqualifying, at least from where I'm sitting, it was disqualifying. Uh, and, you know, because the alternative is, is to do nothing. Is it, okay, we can have a trial, and maybe we don't. Maybe we don't convict him, and he and he kind of walks off. Okay, he's twice impeached, uh, not convicted. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to send the message and uh, and and let you know let future generations know there is conduct that is so out of bounds that you should be prohibited from seeking high office in this country. And and I think Donald Trump met that threshold, and I think a lot of folks. You know, too many folks right now are trying to find ways to allow the president to escape or evade 
being held to account. And, you know, these are all excuses. I mean, all these procedural issues. Oh, we shouldn't have a trial. He's out of office. Well, you know, the act was committed, you know, two weeks before, two or three weeks before he was to leave office. So, you know, we can't control the calendar here. So I'm, I guess I'm, and the party, the Republican party, I've been saying this, I've been saying this till I'm blue in the face, uh, that it must become a party that is more inclusive, that it, you know, it has to become more socially tolerant. Parties, you know, they're, they're all about inclusion. They're about addition, multiplication, not subtraction, not exclusion, not division. In order, you have to grow and the party must become more constructively engaged on the international stage. And, uh, and, it, and it must continue to reject, it must reject this kind of cronyism and mercantilism uh, that Trump had pushed and, and, and support free markets with reasonable and modern regulation and, and start coming up with policy solutions on, on issues outside of their comfort zone on whether it's climate change or immigration. Simply complaining about the squad might excite the base, but it really does not, um, it, it, it's, but it's not an answer you know, to the challenges of the day. So that's where I think the party's got to move and get beyond this cult of personality and, and start uh, thinking about uh, larger principles and ideals, you know, if it wants to be taken seriously. And, and uh, otherwise, you know, we don't, you can go the way of the Whigs. You know, and that's, does anybody want to be a Whig right now? I don't think so. I, I always thought of them more as the know-nothings than the Whigs, but, you know, what do I know? Well, <laughs> Michael, the, you know, the one thing I'd say, I think Charlie raises a really important point on the martyr question, and I have I have the same concern. Uh, but I think there's something instructive on that, which is when Twitter banned um, uh, Trump, uh, he lost a very – he became a martyr for, you know, the he's being muzzled and all that. But – there's a study out that says misinformation on Twitter is down 73%. Hmm. So to the extent that some people feel aggrieved, it's worth it. Yeah. The, the, yeah. To put a period on this part of the discussion, and I want to pivot a little bit in the time we have remaining. It, it seems to me that the point that has to be made is that under our current system, we saw this in the, in the Mueller investigation, there is a law or at least a policy within the DOJ that immunizes a president from consequences of their criminal or, or other acts um, while in office. You can't indict a president while in office. And so that's sort of the law. We'll call it the law. And then if the norm is once the president leaves office, you need to you know, turn the other cheek, then the office of the president is the only – office in America where that person is never held accountable. He can't be held accountable while in office. And the norm says you don't hold him accountable after he leaves office. It's a get out of jail free card. And I think that can't be the case. You just cannot have that as, as, as the, the case. I agree. Right. Yeah. I want to just right. pivot though for yep. a minute because you guys started your, your pieces back in November 20 talking about whether or not he should be indicted. We've been talking all this time about impeachment. Impeachment's going to come and it's going to go. He's going to be convicted or he's not going to be convicted. And he's going to be disqualified or disqualified or he's not going to be disqualified. But I'd like you to revisit the question of indictment, prosecution, investigation, indictment, prosecution, if the facts and evidence warrant it, of, of the president, 
So do we go that route too? So we're going this impeachment route. Do we go that route too? Does Joe Biden say to the Justice Department, you guys do whatever you would do in the ordinary course and it'll be what it will be? Or does he try to say, you know what, I just don't want this on my watch because I need to be, I need the American people to be concentrating on the matters that, uh, that are uh, before us, a pandemic, uh, an economic situation that's a c- catastrophe, et cetera. Before the Georgia call and before the insurrection on the 6th, I would have said the latter, you know, let's, you know, I, I don't want this on my watch, but since then, I don't see how it can be ignored. So maybe the former that you just say to the justice department, do what you would do ordinarily, uh, not, not put your finger on the scale one way or the other, but I think that's what I would do. And also I'd look, I, I do think the president, you know, is going to be held accountable by law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, you, you, Trump University or the Trump Foundation, or we read stories of inflating asset values to secure loans. Um, you know, these are unrelated to his uh, time as president, but nevertheless, he'll be. And I think he should be held accountable too by state officials or uh, county officials in Fulton County uh, regarding that uh, Raffensburger call where he's trying to get him to steal 12, nearly 12,000 votes. So I, I, I don't know how you can ignore that. Can you imagine, Joe? Or, uh, or Michael, if if a member of Congress had picked up the phone and called a local election official or a state election official and say, hey, I'm down a couple thousand votes in my election. You, we all know I got ripped off. Hey, find me that extra two thousand five hundred votes. It'll put me over the top. You know, of course, the Justice Department or the state attorney general would be crawling up your backside, wouldn't they? I mean, in what, in what world would they not be doing that if it were revealed that you were actually making those kinds of pleas. So I, so I do think he's going to have, I, I do think the president is, is fair game. I, I, I prefer that it be at the state level as much as possible, but, but given what happened on the sixth, boy, I, I don't know how the justice department will be able to ignore it and just say, Hey, we're washing our hands of it. Time to turn the page. I, I don't know. It's just that we've never been here before, I guess. It just doesn't seem, you know, we, there's been a criminalization of politics in our country for a long time. We tend to criminalize politics perhaps when we shouldn't. But in this case, it, it really does seem like real crimes were committed, you know, and, uh, and not just political ones. So uh, I don't know. That's kind of my thought on it. Yeah, Michael, I, you know, I think, you know, presidents should be given um, real deference uh, on criminal prosecution simply because you don't want a president not doing what he thinks is in our national security and the best interest in America and taking half measures because he or she thinks they're going to get prosecuted uh, afterwards. Uh, and I think that's why um, the norm has been that, um, you know, whatever happened during um, uh, the presidency, you know, when they're out, they're out. Uh, but this is different. Um, you know, the, the great irony is that Trump spent six months talking about voter fraud and committed it on a scale we've never seen in this country before, uh, maybe outside of Cook County in Chicago. But uh, it, it's you, you have to um, you, you have to reconcile how serious this is and try to balance 
the interest of keeping the executive strong and the ability to be decisive and make very controversial and close legal decisions um, against, uh, Michael, what you called the get out of jail card free, uh, the get out of jail free card. Uh, and in this case, it's, it's, it is a hard choice, but it seems to me there's only one choice, and that is to, at a minimum, fully investigate. Um, you know, I, Charlie, I, you, I think you'll agree with this. Congress, you know, over a one-month period has, uh, a, you know, a lot of smart people, but they're going to have limited power to fully investigate this, turn over every card, every look under what's okay. uh, every rock. The Justice Department is not. They can take their time. And even at the end, um, if, if they don't indict, I want to see the full reckoning of this. I want to know what everybody did, what, what they did and when they knew it and who was doing what, that I think um, Congress will not be able to capture in, in the short period of time that they have to put their case together. And again, they're looking at a very limited uh, issue of did he incite the riot? Uh, so at least um, whether it's a special prosecutor or, uh, you know, someone from the criminal division uh, taking the time, putting the resources in to fully understand what laws, if any, were broken. Can you do that, Charlie, with congressional oversight? I mean, do they have the, a, a two-year time to, to hold, you know, the, the hearings that are needed to put together what Joe is asking for, which is sort of the complete historical record so we know what happened? Well, sure, they have the time. The question is, should they spend the time? Right. You know, you got a new you got a new president, uh, you know, who wants to get, you know, who wants to advance an agenda on infrastructure. And of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We keep forgetting uh, that we're in a pandemic and we need to get out of this thing. And that requires immediate attention. So I, I guess the answer is, yeah, I want to get to the bottom of it. And Congress should hold their trial and the Senate should hold their trial. And and, and I think it remains to be seen just how much more. Uh, Congress should do. Now, there's been talk, and I would agree with this, and I think Republicans in the House agreed with this, too, during the impeachment debate, that there should be a 9-11 style commission uh, to review what happened on the 6th. So I say, let's do it that way. Have this this commission that's somewhat independent, I guess, if it's a 9-11 like commission, let them come back and report to Congress what they found out. And so maybe take it a little bit out of Congress's hands um, and but have a you know a bipartisan group of distinguished citizens leading the uh, uh, the inquiry, and then uh, just like the nine eleven commission, they came back with a report that everybody took seriously, and those uh, recommendations were by and large implemented. Nearly all of them, not uh, not everyone, but most of them were. And maybe we should uh, do the same thing here. And that's a, I think a better use of time for a commission, perhaps than than the standing committees who are going to have their plates full with uh, all the things that Joe Biden is going to be talking about. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. And and Joe, you, you're, you're good friends with a lot of people in the administration. Maybe we can recommend Charlie to chair the commission. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, oh. Charlie, you're, unfortunately, uh, for you, uh, Michael, for your listeners, you can't see the look on Charlie's face, but, <laughs> but we can. And, and I would say that he just declined that assignment. Uh, well. well, the question is, I don't know if they want me. I mean, it'd be, it'd be a great honor. Was it Tom Kane and... Uh, 
was it Lee Hamilton? Lee Hamilton, yeah. yeah. yeah Lee, Lee Hamilton. Hamilton. It, it's uh, Tom and uh, and Lee were the uh, ones who did the nine eleven commission. They did, a, and everything. Everybody, I think, thought they did a terrific job. Yeah. And uh, and you know, they were kind of removed from politics for a while, and uh, and uh, seen as elder statesmen. You're going to need people like that. To, you know, well, to, to Char- Char- Charlie, I'm pretty sure the Democrats wouldn't object to you. I'm not so sure about Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, some would like me on there. Uh, yes, some I would, know. Yeah. Some would, uh, but there are others who will, who would object at this point. But uh, uh, you know, that's the problem right now on the Republican side. It's so hard for us. Um, you know, for those of us who are a little bit more conventional, a little bit more traditional. I, I always, I never changed. You know, and you know, and it's one of those things too. When I when I was running in 2016, I never supported Donald Trump. I didn't say things nearly as personal as Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio uh, or uh, or Rick Perry did about Donald Trump. You know, the things they said. I just said, look, I I thought the guy was unfit, and you know, and I think you know he's kind of glorifies ignorance at times. But I'm never going to support him. But these other guys, you know, called him a sniveling coward. They called him, you know, <laughs> cancer on conservatism and. You know, all sorts of things. And, you know, the difference is, I guess I meant it, <laughs> but I didn't but I didn't go nearly as far rhetorically as they did. And I try to be somewhat measured in the criticisms. But the uh, but the, and I think that's the problem. Though. A lot of people said things then that they guess they just didn't mean. Yeah, I want I want to say one thing and then I think we're getting close to the end. So I want to close on uh, how do we get to uh, to unity. But one, one thing that I've been thinking about and, and Joe, I think of your politics as, as progressive, which is that what I'm afraid of is the expansion of the use of the incitement to riot um, theory of prosecution. We've seen incitement and seditious conspiracy over the years being brought against more people on the left than um, white nationalists and, and, and others. There have been some cases, for sure, Brandenburg versus Ohio, he was a, a Klansman, but they jailed Eugene Debs, they prosecuted the Chicago Seven, they prosecuted the Puerto Rican nationalists, environmentalists, chaining themselves to um, uh, fences to prevent pipelines and, and nuclear plants. And what I'm afraid of is that the ex- that that this hysteria around the 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 events of January 6 will lead to an expansion of domestic terrorism laws which then will turn be turned around uh, against us if you will against other other people who are engaged in activity that the the the, the powers that be don't like. And so I was wondering if you would react, because it's one of the things that makes me most nervous about the incitement to insurrection charge. I just keep thinking about how insurrection has been used in the past against progressives. And the last thing I want to do is be the person who, because I don't like Donald Trump, um, encourages the expanded use of these statutes knowing that I'm going to be perhaps the next person they look to for use. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a completely valid concern. I think if you look at uh, post 9-11, there were probably some things that were done within a year, a year and a half of it that had to be walked back um, uh, or moderated uh, later. Uh, so you understand the 
desire to attack a problem, uh, but you have to understand what the consequences, both intended and unintended, uh, are. I think in this case, um, the Justice Department prosecutors, whoever's going to dig in, um, really should focus on uh, the money. Like, where did the money come from uh, to get all these people there to organize this? And by some newspaper reports, there are at least six entities that Trump is associated with that uh, contributed millions of dollars to, you know, put on this event. I think there you can uh, move it out of purely a free speech uh, 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 debate and into a planned terrorist attack. Um, you know, we have no, it, it doesn't impose any free speech um, uh, real restrictions when we look at terrorist financing uh, and we, we break up networks because they have to bank. Uh, so I, I would hope that they really get to the bottom of that uh, because I think, you know, it's in politics uh, and pr I probably law if I ever went to law school, you know, following the money is always a smart thing uh, because it tends to um, uh, uh, widen the lens and focus the lens, um, you know, on what we think was just, uh, you know, an insurrection mob, uh, you know, and the, uh, Trump's people will argue was spontaneous. Yeah. Well, the question is, when does a bunch of it, when, when do a bunch of anarchists become insurrectionists? And, um, you know, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Uh, and, you know, but, but I, but I have to say that, you know, I looked at the mob that showed up at the Capitol on the 6th, you know, how many people show up to protest wearing body armor and wearing helmets and carrying, you know, those uh, plastic, uh, you know, hand restraints, uh, like, like plastic handcuffs. I mean, who, who does that, I guess. And, you know, and I, I'm curious too, you know, it, it was kind of bizarre. I don't know how many people were armed who entered the Capitol. I don't know. I mean, I just simply don't know. I know there were some pipe bombs found a couple blocks away and some vehicles, but I don't know much else about it. So it's just a very odd situation that, that we find ourselves in. On the one hand, it seemed like it was a premeditated attack, but they, they came angry and they came with hockey sticks and they came with other uh, seems types of, you know, weaponry that were used uh, on the police. But it was a, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, a, it struck me as a, a premeditated attack orchestrated on the one hand, planned, uh, but it also, you know, and there were some really serious bad actors in there. And there were also some people who thought they were tourists. And then there was a guy who looked like he was in the village people. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, all this stuff. I mean, it's like a freak show, too. You know, so it was, you know, white nationalists. It was uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the Proud Boys uh, and the QAnon conspiracy theorists. You know, and and some freaks. And it was a uh, it's weird. And other people going around like they're, you know, taking pictures. I mean, I, I you know, if you're going to commit crimes, you know, why would you video it? I mean, that was the other thing, too. All these people taking video of a, of a crime scene that they're part of. I mean, I I don't know. I just your head's like I said, uh, my head has exploded 10 times since uh, uh, since uh, January 6th. So last question, because while we could talk for another hour or two, for sure. Um, all good things come to an end, as they say. So how do we get from where we are now with the possibility of criminal prosecutions, with the reality of a divisive impeachment hearing to a Senate that's 50-50 and they can't even decide 
who's in who is in charge of of what committee how do we get to a point charlie where um healing is possible or is that just delusional thinking no i i think look the good news here is that both chuck schumer and mitch mcconnell are institutionalists and i do think that mitch mcconnell is thinking about legacy and you know there is a template for the senate at least to move forward i mean there was an agreement after uh, george w bush was elected in 2000 you had a 50 50 senate and they you know and, and lot and um uh, and Daschle came to an agreement. You know, the committees would be evenly split. Tie would go to the majority, to the that would be the Democrats and that, I mean, the Republicans in that case, uh, to advance a bill uh, out of committee. Uh, so I think they can, I think they can use that 2000 model, 2001 model, going forward. So I, I feel like there's a there there is some hope uh, because I do believe that McConnell uh, is thinking hard about legacy, and you know, and he is at the he. You know, say what you will about him or Chuck Schumer. You know, the right thinks that Chuck Schumer is a, you know, a lefty, but he's actually pretty pragmatic. You know, the, the left thinks that you know, Mitch McConnell's evil. But, you know, I've, every deal that I've ever seen in Washington during my time, Mitch McConnell has had his fingerprints on it and, you know, helped facilitate it. So these, these two are adults. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm call me a little bit more optimistic than most people. I think we'll come. We'll, we'll, we'll come to an agreement. And we'll, we'll move forward. Yeah, I, you know, I think... There, there's a couple of uh, models and, you know, um, cautionary tales. Uh, and, you know, I look at um, post-1989 in South Africa, uh, where Mandela talked about uh, truth and reconciliation, and you can't have one without the other. Uh, so I think we do have to do, we have to take the risk uh, that we continue to divide people uh, to get to the truth. And you don't have to look much further than Europe. Uh, in the 20th century, you know, after World War One, the um, the punishment and holding Germany accountable uh, contributed to the conditions that led to the rise of the Nazi Party and Adolf Hitler, and we all know what happened there. And after World War Two, there was a real uh, emphasis on rebuilding and reconciling uh, Europe as an important part of the world. So there are, there are models there, but the idea that we can just say, you know, my bad, it's in the past, let's move forward. Uh, I just, it just doesn't cut it. And there's going to have to be some, some truth and accountability before we have, if we want reconciliation to be real, uh, we, we have to have some accountability. I'd so agree. I think we can end th- this way, which is to say we've got Charlie running the uh, new 9-11 <laughs> commission um, and Joe is going to be the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then whatever you two decide, America just going to have to go with. <laughs> and, and, and all all of our meetings are going to be in podcast form. I'll serve as outside yes. counsel to the yes. two of you. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll change all the names to protect the guilty. Okay. It'll work out just fine. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you guys. This has been so much fun and, and, and so you. instructive and I appreciate your taking the time and I look forward to working with you guys coming down the line. Thanks Michael. Thanks, Michael. Take care, Joe. That said, is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. 
Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I am Michael Zeldin.